Amen. Thank you, Vince and Wells and Allison. That was beautiful, beautiful prayer. Um, let's keep praying. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us uh, to preach, uh, to preach you the word of God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I went to a school uh, in a little village called Ratfarnham in County Dublin. My first day at school, this convent, long winding driveway up to it. One of those gothic doors, great studs in it. I rang the bell and opened. And there's one of these nuns, flapping. <laughs> terrifying, terrifying, three and a half, four years of age, terrifying. What do you want, little boy? Mummy. My mummy and daddy said, I've got to come here. Yes? Well, if you come here, you've got to be a good little boy. Will you be a good little boy? And I could see Pastor. There's a fellow nailed to a cross. <laughs> I thought you're bloody right, I'll be a good little boy. So images of a fellow nailed to a cross might be an effective way to make little boys act good, but it's probably not an effective way to make good little boys. The nun asks, will you be a good little boy, and well, just the way she act, asks it might just ensure that, that he's not. That's Dave Allen, the Irish comedian, reflecting on his uh, strict Catholic upbringing he made a career out of being a practicing atheist, and he would end all of his shows by toasting the audience and saying, good night, thank you, and may your God go with you. He didn't want anything to do with that God that hung that fellow on that tree. He must have been taught, or maybe he assumed, because we naturally assume this, that that God will um, give us just what we deserve, that we'll get what we're de we deserve. We, we call that justice. And he was also probably taught that getting tail to it, nailed to a cross is what he deserved because he'd been bad. And even if he hadn't been bad, that he had inherited the bad. That's the doctrine of original sin, according to Augustine or Augustine. He must have also been taught that although all humanity deserved to be punished, the man on the tree was punished in our place. How exactly it is that crucifying a man on a tree saves us from damnation, that is how the atonement works, well, that has been the topic of debate, I don't know if you knew this, but topic of debate for like 2,000 years he must have also been taught that, that although humanity deserved to be punished, the man on the tree was punished in our place in order to satisfy justice. 
In the fourth century, Augustine defined justice as retribution. Retribution and the exact opposite of, of mercy. Augustine, who was the first great Roman theologian, the first church father, that well-known church father that really didn't read the Bible in his native tongue, he, he argued that for a few, God chose to exhibit his mercy, which meant that they did not get what they deserved. But for most, God chose to exhibit his justice, which meant they did get what they deserved, which was unending perpetual torment, punishment. He argued that this was necessary so that those who received mercy would be unendingly, perpetually grateful that they had not received what they deserved. That is retribution, divine retribution, justice. So little Dave Allen must have been taught that the man on the tree was punished in, in our place. Well, that is the place of those that agree to the terms and conditions of the Roman Catholic Church. During the Reformation, Luther and Calvin taught that the man on the tree was punished in our place. That is the place of those that have faith. And then they taught that if you had faith, you would know that you had faith because you would agree to the terms and conditions of the Lutheran Reformed or Presbyterian Church. Anabaptists soon taught that Jesus suffered in everyone's place, but, well, it only worked for a few. Those that exercised good judgment by making the choice to join the Baptist Church, or Mennonite, or Wesleyan, or Methodist, whatever. It was the Protestant reformers in the 15th century who came up with the full-blown doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. But it has as its roots, its roots are in Augustine's concept of retributive justice. And, and now, ironically, it's what almost all American evangelicals, be they Catholic, Protestant, or, uh, Mennonite, Wesleyan, whatever, so, but, but almost all evangelicals believe. Penal substitutionary atonement theory goes something like this. Number one, God is just. Number two, justice is retribution. Number three, so God, God is forced. God must, must, he has to punish offenders. And number four, God is also merciful, and so he chooses to punish Jesus uh, in our place, <laughs> which technically is punishing himself in our place. And, I, and that sounds right, right? I mean, in many ways, I think it, it is right. But when we argue that he only did it for some, God seems awfully unjust. And the moment we define justice as divine retribution and divine retribution as the opposite of mercy, well, we like literally rip God apart. But it sounds right to us, doesn't it? I mean, isn't justice retribution? The word comes from the Latin, I don't, I don't know Latin, but it, in the dictionary, retribuere, era, retribuere, or retributere, something like that, to pay back. So we say, there's going to be hell to pay. I want justice. Every time there's a mass shooting, like in Boulder a few weeks ago, 
invariably some government official from the Department of Justice perhaps will be interviewed and they will invariably say, we don't know exactly who did this, but you can rest assured there will be justice. We will get justice. What do they mean by that? Seriously. They cannot mean that they're going to make it right unless they think they have the power to raise 10 dead people and give the shooter a new heart. What they mean is that they're going to find one person that shot the other 10 persons and they're going to punish that one person to the full extent of the law. We all want that, that kind of justice. Every three-year-old knows how to demand it. That's why they constantly say, that's not fair, that's not fair, that's not fair. Mine, 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 that's not fair. And then dad says, you want fair? I'll show you fair. We all want that type of justice until we reflect on that type of justice and then we find ourselves a little bit terrified that we might just get that type of justice. We all complain that God is not just, but then we find ourselves running from God's judgment for fear that his judgment might be just. You want fair? Oh, I'll show you fair. We beg God to forgive, right? We think that at least for us, that means that he won't be just. In other words, forgiveness means that he'll like let us off the hook. That is, we beg God to be unjust, that is unfair, but the moment we suffer, we complain, how could you be so unjust, God? That's not fair. Or maybe we just think there is no God because there is no justice. My father was the most Christ-like man that I've ever known. I've told you that. He was my best friend. I loved him more than I can say. It was about 37 years ago that my father had come downtown to take care of some business and something went terribly wrong. It was then that a group of men assaulted him with knives. They stabbed him in the chest, broke his sternum, several ribs, they knocked him unconscious and they took a huge sum of money. We wonder why people would do such things. But such things make me want to do such things to other people. I was in California at the time. As my dad uh, lay unconscious at Swedish Medical Center, my sister Lydia and I hopped on a plane. We flew back to Colorado. He was still unconscious on life support when I arrived at the ICU. I sat by his bed and remember I just stared at what looked like a corpse. It's at times like that that we wonder, are we being punished for something? What did I do? What did my loved one do to deserve this? Is there a God, and if so, is he just? And now, how do I get justice? How do I get retribution? 2,608 years ago, the Jews were asking all these questions. 
And God answered through the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel had been taken into captive along with the first group of exiles that had uh, been uh, taken by um, Babylon 12 years earlier, but some were still in Jerusalem. But even as Ezekiel prophesies, Jerusalem is being besieged and more exiles will soon follow. This is Ezekiel 33 verse 10, and you son of man, God refers to Ezekiel as son of man, and then he gives him his word, you son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. In other words, we're paying for them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you, or, or literally, these are um, incomplete verbs in, in Hebrew, so they get translated, why will you, more, more literally, why do you die, O house of Israel? have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 14 years ago, my denomination required me to publicly pro profess that, quote, it pleased God to ordain some of mankind to dishonor and wrath to the praise of his glorious justice. I said I couldn't do that because <laughs> of Ezekiel 18, verse 11. And I didn't think their definition of justice really matched God's definition of justice. And I'm not sure that anyone's does. Next verse, verse 12. And you, son of man, say to your people, the righteousness of the righteous shall, or, or does, probably is more literal, is does, the righteousness of the righteous does not deliver him in the day he transgresses, and as for the wickedness of the wicked, he does not fall by it in the day he turns from his wickedness, and the righteous is not able to live by his righteousness in the day he sins. Though I say to the righteous that he does surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds are remembered or shall be remembered. But in his injustice that he has done, he does die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you do surely die, yet if he turns from his sin and does what is mishpat, just, and right, tzedakah, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he does surely live. He does not die. None of the sins that he has committed are remembered against him. He has done what is mishpat, just, and right. He does surely live. Now, that is a challenge for us to follow. As is evidenced by all the confusion translators have with the translation of those, of those verbs. But, but I think God just said this. If you do all sorts of good things and then you do a bad thing, you die. <laughs> and none of your good things count. They're not even remembered. And if you do all sorts of bad things and then do a good thing, you live. And none of your bad things count. But if you do all sorts of bad things, how could you ever do a good thing? Because, well, at that point, you'd be dead. 
It's hard to sort all of that out, and it's really bothered me over the years. I mean, I've read 33 different times throughout the years, and I think the overwhelming reason it bothered me is I kept thinking, but <laughs> that's not fair. Next verse, 17. Yet your people say the way of the Lord is not fair. Itakan, just. That means fair. Takan is a verb translated be equal or weigh or balance or measure. And so it's an obvious reference to retributere in the Latin. That is paying back. That is retributive justice. It's interesting that the translators trans this word, translate this word as just, but they also just translated a completely different word as just, and that word is mishpat. Mishpat is a hugely important word in the Old Testament. It, it's a noun built on the verb shafat. Mishpat and shafat. Mishpat comes from shafat. Shafat is normally translated as judge or to judge. It's a verb. And mishpat, the noun, is normally translated judgment, justice, or what is just. Mishpat is obviously good judgment. And you see, that is not necessarily what we would call Itakin, fair. Yet your people say the way of the Lord is not fair, just Itakin, when it is their own way that is not fair, just Itakin. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he does die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is mishpat and right, he does live. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not fair, Itakin. O house of Israel, I will... Shaphat, I will judge each of you according to his ways. In other words, you want fair? I'll give you fair. The measure you give will be the measure you get. The judgment you pronounce will be the judgment you receive. And we can only hope that we've, well, that uh, after we've tasted our bad judgment, God will show us maybe some good judgment, right? Mishpat. There's an awful lot going on in Ezekiel 33, and I still don't claim to understand all of it, but recently reading over it again, I mean, one thing, a few things actually became abundantly clear. Number one, retributive justice is a myth. Or maybe a better way to say it is our notion of retributive justice is a myth. It's, 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 it's an illusion. At times, God prescribes Retributive justice for his people, like the lex talionis, an eye for an eye. God prescribes retributive justice for his people, for, for if we want fair, dad will show us fair. That is, the judgment we pronounce will be the judgment we receive. That is, if we want to try and justify ourselves with knowledge of good and evil, dad will allow us to, to try. <laughs> if, if we want to justify ourselves with works of the law, in the power of the flesh, dad will say, okay, give it a shot. That is, we can try to pay, but no one can pay. <laughs> there is no retributive justice with God, at least not in the way we mean retribution. Now, there is punishment and reward, but neither of them are payment. 
It's usually important, I think, to always remember that to a group of people, none of whom called themselves Christians, none of them have been, uh, been to a new members class, to that group of people, he said, when you talk to God, say, our dad. He didn't say call him boss or your honor or executive director. He said call him dad, our dad, our father in heaven. You may have had a bad dad, but I had a, a great dad. And with my dad, there was no such thing as retributive justice. There was definitely punishment. I know this. There was definitely punishment. But never with the idea that I was paying for my crimes, but always with the idea that I was learning something important. In other words, all the punishment was a gift. All the punishment was discipline. There was punishment and there was reward, but never with the idea that I was being paid for my labor, but always with the idea that I was being invited to share in my father's joy, to share in his work. All the rewards were grace, for it became abundantly clear that everything was, was gift. My father gave me life, including the desire to work. He gave me life, but never even suggested that I ought to pay. I mean, often I remember him saying this. He used to say this to me, and apparently with great joy, he would look at me and say, Peter, everything that's mine belongs to you. It brings tears to my eyes because that is exactly what the father says to the older brother, standing in the outer darkness, weeping and gnashing his teeth in Jesus' story of the prodigal son. And that is exactly what that same father had demonstrated to the younger son, even while his plan was to simply use his father in order to get his stuff by making himself his father's employee. And that, the father's generosity, is exactly why the older brother had refused to party and was now standing in the outer darkness. He thought his dad was unfair because he thought that he had paid and that his little brother had not paid, and all the while he was literally breaking his father's heart because he didn't want employees. He wanted sons. The word retributive never appears in my ESV Bible. And the word retribution appears twice. Hebrews 2.2 2 and Romans 11.9. Hebrews 2.2 2 reads, every transgression received a just retribution. But that word retribution is more commonly translated reward. And the next sentence, Hebrews 2.3 reads, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That is, it's as if the great salvation that is a just reward is stalking us like a lion. Romans 11.9 reads, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution. And Paul is quoting David who's talking like Jesus in Psalm 69, and I think Paul is implying that the table is the table of the Lord. And so the stumbling block is body broken and blood shed. It's the divine judgment upon the human ego. It's the knowledge that we cannot pay. It's the recompense for your every sin, burning hot grace. 
Paul then writes just a few verses later, God consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy, that he may have grace on all. Paul then quotes Job saying, who has first given a gift to him, which can also be translated, who has first prevented him or who has betrayed him that he might be repaid? And then to make things abundantly clear, Paul just sings this, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. You understand? If God is the creator who creates everything from nothing and space and time themselves are his creation, then belief in our common notions of retributive justice or paying God for anything is literally like a form of insanity. And salvation by grace through faith is waking to reality from a dream that has become a nightmare, which we often call this world, and sometimes hell. Salvation is simply coming to terms with the fact that you did not create yourself. And you are, in fact, your father's good creation. And so anxiety which is usually worrying about what we possess, right? What we have, what we can pay for. Pride, ego, all that stuff, insecurity, possessiveness, envy, greed, rage, competition. They're all forms of insanity. And all sanity is gratitude, worship, praise. There is no retributive justice with, with God that would demand God to simply punishment punish us, to simply punishment, and, and, and so there is no penal substitutionary atonement if by that we mean that God the Father needs to torture sinners to satisfy justice, or needs to torture God the Son in order to feel better about you. And yet, if by penal we mean discipline, well, Jesus did suffer for us, didn't he? And he does suffer with us, doesn't he? In fact, he bears all the pain of the illusion in which we have trapped ourselves. And if by substitute we mean that Jesus does what we cannot do and he does it for us, well, that is abundantly clear because he is literally our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In other words, he is our mishpat. He's the Father's good judgment. Coming to life within us, he, he's justice rising from the dead in the sanctuary of your soul. So anyway, like I was saying, if Ezekiel 33 is true, so that when the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he does die, and when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he, he lives, well, then, number one, our notion of retributive justice is, well, it's ridiculous. And number two, it seems that the only thing that matters is now. Right? Do the math. Now. The past doesn't matter, at least not how we think it matters. Won't be, won't be remembered once you, you turn, he said. 
or at least not the way we think it does. The past doesn't matter, and I suspect that if, we truly, if we're truly righteous now, we have no reason to be unrighteous in the future. Listen to what John says in 1 John 3, 6. No one who sins has seen him or known him. No one who sins has seen him or known him. So once you truly see him, once you truly know him, you won't sin. Okay, this isn't really letting the cat out of the bag, but I do sin. And I don't sin. So it appears that I've seen him, and yet I also haven't seen him. It's like I haven't seen him well, so I have a new man that cannot sin, and I have an old man that can only sin. How I sacrifice the old and liberate the new is all about now. Ezekiel makes it clear, God cares about now. Eckhart Tolle writes, for the ego to survive, that's my old man, it must make time, past and future, more important than the present moment, that's now. The ego knows nothing of being, but believes you will eventually be saved by doing, that is paying. And so we run from the presence of I am that I am, the presence of the lion, by hiding in plans for the future, right? And, and hiding in anxieties from the past when the lion wants us to stop and look at him right now. Like the father in Jesus' story, I have two sons. And I was really thinking about this hard. Honestly, when, when the truth is told, I really don't care what they've done as long as I have their hearts now. Number one, our notion of retributive justice is ridiculous. Number two, what matters is right now. Number three, we're dead. Or at least we were dead. Ezekiel 33, 18, when the righteous turns, when the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he does die for it. When he does injustice, he dies. When? Didn't that already happen? In a garden at a tree? And didn't that already happen for you when you were like maybe three years old? And aren't dead people incapable of doing anything? So why is God telling us these things through Ezekiel? And why, for that matter, was Jesus crucified on that tree? Well, in Ezekiel 33, 20, God says, You say that my judgment is not fair. I will judge each of you according to your judgment. I'll show you what's fair. In the next verse, in, in Ezekiel 33, a fugitive from Jerusalem arrives with news that Jerusalem has now been utterly destroyed. God gave Israel thought they had earned, and God took it all away. You want fair? I'll show you fair. Next, God promises to make Israel a desolation and bring her proud might to an end. Verse 29, then they will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord. Verse 33, when this comes, and it will, then you will know a prophet has been uh, among you or among them, uh, then you will know the word of the Lord. Maybe he's telling us so that one day when we're alive, we'll know 
Chapter 34, God promises to rescue them all and feed them with mishpat, with judgment. Think about that. They will literally eat mishpat. What would that, what would that look like? In chapter 35, he issues his judgment on the people who, quote, have cherished perpetual enmity, which is a good description, I think, of what most people call hell. If you like hell, seems you're going to get some hell. Perpetual enmity for a time. Verse 9, then you shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord. That line is like a refrain throughout all of Ezekiel. Then you will know, then you will know, then you will know, then you will know. Chapter 36, to Israel, the Lord says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land and I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, all of them, and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, a breath I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to asa do my mishpat justice you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God verse 35 and they will say this land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden <laughs> salvation is literally heart surgery God takes from you a heart of stone, incapable of pumping blood, blood, in which flows the life, which is the breath, the spirit, the life is in the blood. God takes from you a heart of stone that's full of itself, that trusts in its own righteousness. Did you catch that when he was talking? Trust in its own righteousness, and he gives you something new. In Hebrew thought, the heart is, well, it's like this, it's the center of a person. It's not only the seat of the emotions, it's also the seat of the intellect and most definitely the will. The heart is that thing that makes judgments. Salvation is heart transplant surgery and you cannot pay because you're dead. Ezekiel 37 verse 13, and you, you being the whole house of Israel, which he says in verse 11, shall know, you shall know more of this, you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land, then you shall know, then you will know that I am the Lord, I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Then you will know, then you will know, then you will know, I will do it, I will do it, I will do it, says the Lord, it is accomplished, it is accomplished, it is finished, says the word of God from the tree in the garden. So why was Jesus crucified on that tree in the garden? Listen to a really literal translation of John 1.18. No one has yet at any time seen God. And yet John makes it clear that when we see Jesus, we somehow see God. And we see him truly when we see him enthroned on the cross at the edge of time and eternity, according to John. And God told Moses, man shall not see me and live, so we must die with him and rise with him at the cross. Anyway, John 1.18, like I was saying, listen closely to what John writes. No one has yet at any time seen God, 
the only begotten God, and some versions will say the only begotten Son because of variables in the manuscripts. No one has yet at any time seen God, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom, the kolpas, of the Father, He has made Him known. He's God. He's the good in flesh. He's the life, and He has made Him known. He's the judgment of God. He has made Him known. Seeing Him is death, and knowing Him is life. Jesus said that. Knowing the Father and the one whom He sent is, is life. He's the judgment of God. And, and check this out. This right here. This is the kolpas. The sternum. It's right where the physician cuts when he performs open-heart surgery. So why was Jesus crucified on that tree in that garden? Well, because he is the heart of the Father, given to us, his children. And to know our Father and our Father's heart, it must be absolutely imperative that we know that we cannot pay everything, absolutely everything, is gift, including knowing. Everything is gift. We have to know that, otherwise we'll be utterly unable to enjoy the great banquet that our Father is throwing, throwing for older brothers and younger brothers. Throwing for Pharisees and tax collectors and sinners. Throwing for everyone. So when I look upon that tree and the one whom I have pierced, God removes my heart of stone, my ego, my pride, that thing that thinks it must pay, that thing that's full of itself, that thing that cannot lose its life and find its life, that thing that cannot pump blood because, well, it's incapable of love. When I look upon the one whom I have pierced, God removes my heart of stone, and he gives me his own heart, his mishpat, his judgment, his good judgment, his justice. Now, in Hebrew and Greek, but I don't know if it's this way in Latin, but in Hebrew and Greek, the words translated justice almost always are also translated righteousness. Justice and righteousness are one word in, in Greek and Hebrew, and both of them are a decision called love. I love because I've been loved, and I come to know that love at the tree. So when little Dave Allen was sent to Catholic school, and he peeked around the robes of that nun as she looked down upon him and asked, will you be a good little boy? She should have noticed the shock and fear in his eyes as he gazed upon Jesus Christ and him crucified. As he looked upon the one whom we have pierced, she should have noticed and said, oh, sweetheart, I think you misunderstand. That's not what our Father does to people that aren't good. That's what people that aren't good do to our Father. They break his heart. That's what people that aren't good do to our Father. And what our Father does to all of us people that aren't good. 
He gives us his heart. His own heart. And sweetheart, once you know this, once you really know this, you cannot help but be good, for you too will have a new heart. Sometimes people ask, what, what difference does it make? What difference does this knowledge make? And I just don't know quite what to do because the answer is everything. Just way too much to say. And so for right now, I'll just say that as I sat by my father's bed in the intensive care unit at Swedish and watched the color come back into his lifeless, pale skin, I wasn't wondering why people would do such a thing. I wasn't gnashing my teeth and plotting vengeance and rage. I wasn't asking, what did I do wrong? What did he do wrong? I wasn't making deals with God in shame and fear and desperation. I really wasn't even nervous. I was just overwhelmed with gratitude. And I couldn't help but worship. There was a, a huge scar right down the middle of my dad's kolpas. That's where they stuck the knives and broke his bones. It's true that he had gone downtown and something had gone wrong. He had had a heart attack while under the care of his doctor. It's true that they cut him and they broke his bones and committed great violence, but not in order to take life. It was in order to give life, to give him a new heart. And it's true that they took a whole lot of money, but my dad freely agreed to give that money. And when he awoke, he knew what they had done. Then he knew. And he was forever grateful. Actually, Dad did pay for his heart surgery, but you cannot pay for yours. Yours is a transplant, and God himself is the donor. And when you awake, you will be forever grateful. Now, if you're tracking with me, you might say, okay, fine, nice story, Pastor, nice, you know, kind of theology and stuff, but it wasn't heart surgery for those that died in the shooting in Boulder. And it's not heart surgery for their families that suffer that loss right now. And it's not heart surgery for me. It's not heart surgery for me right now. Is that so? Because you see, I think Jesus would argue that it is. He said that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets including Ezekiel, and when he gives you his body and blood, what part of the Father's body do you suppose that he is giving? And didn't he say something about the fact that his word is a knife? Maybe you're feeling that knife right now. Sometimes people will say, well, I know this stuff, but it doesn't make a difference. Well, maybe you know about good and evil. Maybe you've pierced the line of the tribe of Judah, and you've run. And he can catch you, but you haven't let him catch you, and that's what he wants. And maybe you know about the good, but haven't yet been known by the good. You see, it's not 
knowledge that you can take from some book. It's living knowledge that you must receive from a person, even from that person's heart. And so our strategy for change is not to take more knowledge of good and evil from the tree and then work harder to apply it to ourselves in order to justify ourselves. Our strategy is to surrender to God's judgment, His justice, which is our justification. Our strategy is to surrender to the surgeon. That's a remarkably different strategy. Our strategy is to stop and look on Him whom we have pierced. You see, that's why I hope that you come to worship, to hear Him in the music, to listen to Him in the message, to see Him in body broken and blood shed. I hope that's why you spend time each day reading Scripture and offering yourself to the Father as you gaze upon His, His uh, Word on Jesus Christ and Him crucified in prayer. It's why I hope you're part of something like a small group so you can confess your sins one to another and experience mercy. In other words, you can encounter Him in the eyes of people that love you. It's why I hope you find places to serve so you can find Him in the last and the least of these. Not to pay but to learn that you cannot pay. He has paid. The heart of God is grace, and that is his judgment. That's justice. If justice is people getting what they deserve, what's fair, there is no justice. For people deserve nothing. This isn't a rip on people, it's just reality. People deserve nothing. What could they deserve it with? What have you been given that's not gift? Asked Paul. Justice isn't people getting what they deserve. Justice is God getting what God deserves, and that's people that love in his own image. People that love because they've been loved. So, is there a debt to be paid. Well, yeah. You must return the life that you've taken that's also been given in order to receive more life in return. Actually, a, a river of life, which is eternal life. But you see, it's God's life. And he even gives you the will, the decision, the good judgment, the mishpat to return that life. Dad always pays. So is there such a thing as divine retribution? Well, our notion, our notion of divine retribution is a lie, but I suppose there is divine retribution. This is divine retribution. This is how our Father places His heart within His children. You are a debt that God owes to Himself. He, he owes it to Himself to make you in His own image. This is divine retribution. That on the night that Jesus... Um, was betrayed by all of us when we least deserved it. On the night that we least deserve it, Jesus from the colpas of the Father took bread and said, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. 
And then he took the cup, and having given thanks, he said, this is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. <laughs> this is mishpat. This is justice. But is this penal substitutionary atonement? I don't know. Depends on what you mean by that, I would suppose. But whatever the case, this is love from the bosom of your Father. This is your new heart. Amen? And so, Lord Jesus, thank you for washing us uh, white as snow. And thank you for the incredible irony that we ought to pay attention to. And that is that you wash us in your blood. You are good. And we're beginning to know. Thank you for showing us, Jesus, the heart of our Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Because what is sin? Sin is hanging on to your life. It's hanging on to the life. It's mine, mine, mine. That's not fair. <laughs> and the picture of him washing us white as snow, you know, comes from the revelation that he, we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. That, that's what gives us our righteousness. And uh, we're washed in the blood of the Lamb that becomes a river, the river of, of life. So you owe him everything because nothing was yours in the first place. And yet when you read scripture, God's never like, you owe me, owe me, owe me. The thing that we owe him is gratitude. And that comes with a certain knowledge that he gives us. That's what the father wanted at the banquet, right? He wanted his sons to know he paid for everything. And so he wanted them to enjoy the dinner. <laughs> and that's what everybody, dad wants from their kids. That they would enjoy him and each other and all things uh, with him. So anyway, um, Jesus said, remember, to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, why are you so slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken? And I really wondered about that. Why are we so slow to believe that he can make all things new? Why are we so slow to believe, like Isaiah says, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess? See, I think we're so slow because we just have such a hard time believing that God could give us a new heart. <laughs> because that means a new decision, a new judgment, a new desire. We're so slow to believe that he created us in the first place, let alone that he could recreate us and give us a new heart. But he will. And what gives me hope is that when you believe that, that's already that new heart beginning to pump in your chest. And so, by way of benediction, um, may you exercise your new heart. May you believe the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.